Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Peter um, chapter 3 verse 8 all the way to the end of chapter 4. So bear with me. Um, 总而言之你们要同心彼此体恤相爱如弟兄存谦卑的心不以恶报恶以辱骂还辱骂到要祝福因为你们是为此蒙召好叫你们承受福气 因为基上记者说,人若爱生命,愿想美福,虚静止舌头,不出恶言,嘴唇不说诡诈的话,也要离善行恶,寻求和睦,一心追赶。因为主的眼看顾一人,主的耳听他们的自己祷,唯有行
他们的灵性却靠神活着。Next， 嗯、um, ，万物的结局近了，所以你们要谨此自守啊，谨、呃、行祷告。最紧要的是彼此切实相爱，因为爱能遮盖许多的罪。Next， 你们要互相款待，不发怨言。个人要照所得的恩赐彼此服侍，做神百邦恩赐的好管家。若有讲道的，要按神的圣言讲；若有服侍人的，要按照神所赐的力量服侍。在神在凡事上啊，因耶稣基督的荣耀啊，原来荣耀权柄都是他的，直到永永远远。阿门。Next， 啊，亲爱的弟兄们，有火炼的试验临到你们，不要以为奇怪。似乎呃是遭遇非常的事，倒要欢喜，因为你们是与耶稣呃基督一同受苦，并且在你们他荣耀彰显的时候，也可以欢喜快乐。Next， 呃，你们要若为呃基督的名受辱骂，便是有福的，呃，因为神荣耀的灵常住在你们身上，你们中间不可有人因为杀人、偷窃、呃作恶、好管闲事而受苦。Next。呃，若有呃，若为基督徒呃受苦，却不要为羞耻，倒要因为这名归荣耀给神，因为时候到了，审判要从神的家起手。若是先从我们起手，那不信从神福音的人啊、呃，将有何等的结局呢 ？Next， 呃，若是一人仅仅啊、呃、得救，那不前进和犯罪的人将啊、呃、有何地而可站呢？所以，那赵神啊，旨意受苦的人要一心为善，将自己的灵魂交给那信实造化之主。That's it. <笑> That's all. That's it. Right there. All right. Thanks, Aaron. That's great. Um, because it actually is a lot of text, I actually would encourage you. If you have a Bible, it'll be good to open it up just so you can track along with where I'm going. If you don't have a physical Bible, which I know makes me I'm like the only person left who uses like paper, right? I feel like,、uh, but at least open up your phones. Don't get distracted. I tell my kids, your phones are the distraction zone. So the moment you pick up your phone, you're probably gonna get distracted. But、oh, take up your phones, pull up a Bible app, or Google search the text, First Peter chapter three and four,、uh, and try to your best to follow along because、uh, a lot of text that we're gonna cover. I should also say there's a lot in there that I'm not gonna touch on today. Uh, because there's a whole section about Jesus going down to the dead and being saved through baptism, and it's like the waters of the Ark and Noah. I'm not going to touch any of that. It's important stuff, probably to come back to. But the theme of the text that we're looking at is the theme of suffering, and so I want to make sure that we just stay focused on that theme through this large text.、Uh, so let me dive in. I still remember the day when I was convinced I had just discovered a portal into another world. Uh, I couldn't have been more than five or six years old. It was probably one of those song, long summer days, and I was、uh, bored out of my mind. And as you do, you just kind of wander around looking for something to do. And I wandered, in, wandered into my father's room,、uh, and I kind of sat down at the desk where he used to work. And I just started kind of rifling through his things. And most of it was just like Manila envelope, you know, folders and that kind of everything. But as I kind of、uh, rummaged around, I came across an object that I'd never seen before in my entire life. So to my eyes, it looked like a giant lollipop, but with a piece of glass in the middle that made everything blurry, and it made no sense to me. So I picked it up out of the the jar that he kept kept his pencils and other things in, and I began to look around with it because I said, "Why would you want a glass that made everything blurry? It made no sense." 
But then I discovered that if you put it at just the right distance, it actually made small things huge. It turned out it was a magnifying glass. And when I discovered that what I had come across was a magnifying glass, I had remembered that a friend of mine in school had told me that the, fun, the cool thing about a magnifying glass is if you hold it up into the sun, it turns into a laser beam. This is what I was told. And so I said, this is awesome. So I went over to the windowsill where we had like little dead flies that were kind of already with their little, you know, legs up. They were already dead. But I tried to put the magnifying glass in the sun so that it would become a laser beam and nothing happened. And I was profoundly disappointed. I'm like, that's, that's such baloney. But then I walked away, and as I walked away, I took the magnifying glass with me, and then the portal opened up. Because for a split second, I looked in this magnifying glass, and I saw in the magnifying glass an entirely different world that looked just like mine, but everything was turned upside down. And I think I gasped when I saw that image. And I walked away, and then I pulled the, uh, the, the magnifying just at the right distance again, and it happened again. The portal opened up, and there's a whole other world. It looked just like mine, but everything was turned upside down. And it was enthralling. And I remember putting the magnifying glass, and I didn't tell anybody about the secret that I had discovered. And so for the next few days, I would come back from time to time. I'd pull out, the, look around, close the door behind me, pull out the magnifying glass, just to test to make sure that portal was still there. And that world, present everywhere, no matter where I pointed it, it was op- a portal would open up into this world where everything was just like ours, but flipped upside down. And then later on in life, I had learned about basic optics and focal points, and entire worlds were destroyed for me. But if you think about what my imagination thought it saw that day, that's the kingdom of God. It is an entirely different world that opens up, and it's a world just like ours, but everything is flipped upside down. It's present everywhere you go, and if you have eyes to see, if you have eyes to look into the portal, you can see the world as it was meant to be, everything turned upside down. And if you're a Christian, this upside-down kingdom, this other world, is actually the most, the most real thing in your life. It's far more real than the world we can sense and touch and feel. That when Jesus said, repent, that word repent means reorient your entire lives. Repent. Why? Because this kingdom of God is now in your midst. If you're a Christian, it is the most real thing in your life. And actually, the Christian life could be described as learning to live in that kingdom today. Learning to reorient your entire life so that you live according to the way of this upside-down kingdom present everywhere. To live according to the way of that kingdom today in this world. And this, the, um, the, the theme that we've been exploring is throughout all of 2023, or at least the first half of 2023, we're going to be talking about this theme of being a public people or a public faith. And a big part of the themes that we're trying to explore as a church is to ask the question, what would it look like if Redeemer East Harlem were a community that became a portal for others into this other world, into the really real kingdom of God? As we look at 
First and Second Peter were asking, what would it look like if there was an entire community that made this invisible kingdom visible to the world around us, this upside-down, really real kingdom of God? What if you lived your life in a way that made for your neighbor this kingdom really real? So one theologian said this. He says, we must live in the kingdom of God today in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. We must live in the kingdom of God today in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. Today, the topic that we're going to be looking at as we look at First and Second Peter is we're going to be talking about the topic of suffering because the gospel offers uniquely powerful resources to handle suffering that can open up a portal for our fellow sufferers in this world, that one of the main ways that Christians can be a public people is for us to inhabit suffering in a radically different and radically hopeful way. Okay, so let's look at this text. A lot of, uh, a lot of words here. And we just want to ask the, the text the question, what do we need in order to face suffering? What does the gospel offer to help us face suffering? So the three things that I want to look at is, first, the gospel offers us a hope that suffering can't destroy. Secondly, it offers us a purpose that takes us beyond the self. And then thirdly, it offers us a love that will meet you in your pain. Okay, so first, a hope that suffering can't destroy. If you look at chapter 3, verses 8 through, nine, 8 through 17, basically the first section there, what we're seeing Peter describe to us is this hope. So let me try to read it quickly to you. It says, Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, humble, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because uh, to this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let me stop there. Here's the question. What is it that produces a life that refuses to pay evil for evil or injury with injury? What is it that will produce a life that's willing to actually repay evil visited upon them with blessing? What is it that produces that kind of life? Well, we see the answer to that in verse 12. The only thing that produces that sort of life is this hope is this belief that there is a God whose eyes are on the righteous, whose ears are attentive to their prayer, a God who turns his face against those who do evil. Do you see what Peter's saying? He's saying, look, the only way that you'll live a life that's willing to repay evil, uh, good with evil, repay evil with good, is that right? Yeah, repay evil with good, is if you believe in the end there is a God who will judge righteously that if you do not believe in a God who judges perfectly, then you're going to feel the need to take evil into your own hands. The only thing that produces a life that's willing to enter into suffering is the belief that there is a God whose eyes are on the righteous. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Or look at verse 14, where it says, Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. What produces a life? that is freed from the fear of suffering. Or look at verse uh, 17, 
where it says, if it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for evil. What is it that says it is better to suffer for doing good? A life that would say, I'd rather suffer for good than inflict suffering in the name of good. What could possibly produce a life like that? And the answer is it's a life rooted in a hope that comes from a righteous and holy God. A life willing to take on suffering can only be produced by a hope that comes from outside. You see, what's happening for many of us, I think, in our culture today, we're being told in lots of different ways that there is no God, that this material world is all there is. So therefore, the only source of hope that you have is going to be found within. The only source of hope is to find as good of a life as you can in this material world while you exist. That all of these notions of a higher purpose, of a life after all of this, an immaterial world, that all these things are fiction. And therefore, if these are fiction, then the only purpose in life, the only hope that you have is to build the best kind of life you can for yourself. And so you need to discover what that is. But do you see the fundamental flaw in that approach to suffering? in that approach to hope. If your hope is based on things within this material world, you have to realize that suffering in this world will always destroy your hope. That there's no other way around that. If you're placing your hope in becoming rich, what's going to happen to you when all of your money dies away? If you're placing your hope in love, What's going to happen when you can't find love in this world or when the love of your life dies? If you're placing your hope in family and children, what happens when all that is taken away from you? No matter what you are building your hope upon, if that hope is in this world, it is a hope that is fragile and will not withstand suffering. But if you have a hope that this world cannot take away, a hope that comes from outside this world, that's a hope that suffering cannot, be, that suffering cannot destroy. See, that's what Peter's trying to get at here. He's saying, look, the only way that you'll produce a life that can not only endure suffering, but is willing to take on suffering, is if there is a greater hope that comes to you from the outside. Now, a beautiful example of this, uh, you know, having started Black History Month, a beautiful example of this, of course, is, is the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And maybe one of his most famous quotes uh, is a quote uh, that where he said, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I think in, in our culture today, that notion has a lot of power. The arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But here's the problem. How could we possibly know that that statement is true? If you look at the evidence of the world, if you actually look at the evidence of our senses, actually we would say the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards exploitation. That's what the evidence tells us. Uh, that it, if there is no God, if there is no higher purpose, if there is no greater hope, you look at the world and it's just a strong, eat the weak kind of a world. And that's the natural world that we live in. There's no other reason why our society would function any differently. But what we need to realize is that for Dr. King, that quote is kind of taken out of context. Because can I read to you the, 
sentences that come before Dr. King says that. This was in an article that he wrote. It's called Out of the Long Night of Segregation. Here's the sentences that come before that sentence. It says this. Those of us who called on the name of Jesus find something in the center of our faith which forever reminds us that God is on the side of truth and justice. Good Friday may occupy the throne for, the, for a day, but ultimately it must give way to the triumph of Easter. Evil may so shape events that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross, but that same Christ arose and split history into A.D. and B.C. so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by his name. Yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. How is it that Dr. King could live his life out of that belief? It wasn't just a sentimental belief that we want to be true. He looks at Jesus, his death and his resurrection, and he says, if that Jesus is who he claims to be, then we know that there is a God who is on the side of truth and justice because he rose again from the grave. That's what enabled him to live a life that's described right here, isn't it? A described that says, I will, a life that says, I will not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. A life that says, I will repay evil with blessing. A life that says, even if I'm suffering, I will, do, I will not fear their threats in verse 14. A life who says, it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for evil. The hope that produced that life is the very hope that Peter is talking about here. It's a hope that is rooted in truths beyond this world. It's a hope that suffering cannot destroy because it can't touch it. It's a hope that transcends. Christian, are you building your life on that hope? We sing the, the hymn here pretty regularly. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Right? All other ground is sinking sand. Because Christ is a solid. Christian, are you building your hope on Christ? Or are you building your hope on the American dream? On wealth? On freedom? On family? On romance? What are you building your life on? If you build your life on anything but the hope that is given to us in Jesus, suffering will destroy that hope. But if you root your soul, if you plunge the roots of your soul into a hope that's from outside of this world, then there's no wind, there's no storm, there's no rain that can take your hope away. Do you know what that's like? Secondly, first, we're shown here a hope that suffering can't destroy. Secondly, in order for us to face suffering, we also need a purpose that will take you beyond the self. Turn your attention now to verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 here. Let me read that to you. It says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to, account to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What is Peter saying there? 
He says, if you have a hope from the outside that's beyond the reach of suffering, then you will also have a purpose that allows you to say no to the mere desires of your flesh. Right? What he's saying here is like, look, if there is no purpose outside of the self, then the only reason for living is to gratify the desires of the self. It's only a form of self-fulfillment. Now, what we see here, the examples that Peter gives to us is purely sensual pleasures. You know, he talks about in verse 3 and 4, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. These are the things that he says, if you don't have a purpose outside the self, these are the desires you end up gratifying. And that's true. But there's also a much more sophisticated form of that, that it doesn't have to be all hedonistic pleasures. That actually, if you look at our culture today, our culture is building all of our sense of purpose on self-fulfillment alone. Now, that's not drunkenness, orgies, and debauchery. It's a more sophisticated form of it. But in the end, our culture tells us the only place you will find purpose are in the things that fulfill your sense of self. And what Peter would say is that if you don't have a purpose that transcends the self, you don't have a purpose that empowers you to say no to the pleasures of this world. Let me give you an example. I remember coming across an article. I forget where it was, and I couldn't find it. But basically, it was an article talking about how um, young parents these days, and there are a lot of young parents here. I'm not singling you out, right? So don't, don't feel targeted here. But young parents... Uh, are really struggling in parenthood, maybe more so than any other generation. And part of that is young parents, and again, if you did this, I don't mean to make fun of you, but, you know, you have, like, the gender reveal parties, and you've got all this, like, all this Instagrammable life when it comes to parenting. And what the article was saying was all these folks who are living these Instagrammable parenting lives, in the end, are utterly miserable as parents. And it says, you know, the story that we're told in our culture is that the reason you become a parent is because becoming a parent is one of the most self-fulfilling things you will ever do. The problem is most of parenting is not the most self-fulfilling you'll ever, thing you'll ever do. Most of parenting is the most self-giving love that you will ever show. That when we take parenting and we place it under the umbrella of self-fulfillment, the points where parenting doesn't feel self-fulfilling makes you say, maybe I'm doing this wrong. But what if parenting was actually about self-giving love, not a self-fulfilling experience? What if we're actually meant to be formed for a purpose that actually takes us outside of ourselves? What if we were meant to find something that enables us to take on hardship in ways that transcend the self? Because here's the problem. If the only place you'll find purpose is inside yourself, you will never be able to find purpose that transcends the self. It's simply impossible. And if you don't have a purpose outside of yourself, you ultimately are living a life that's built entirely upon selfish desires. Maybe not drunkenness, orgies, and debauchery, but a life that's entirely drawn into the maelstrom of the self. How do you get freed from that? Peter says the only way you get freed from that is finding a purpose that transcends. I'm going to keep us moving. I had another illustration. I'm going to cut it out. I'm going to keep moving. Third and finally. Okay, so first... 
How do we handle suffering as a community? How do we become this public people, a distinct people? One of the ways that we do that is we enter suffering differently. We need a hope that suffering can't destroy. Secondly, we need a purpose that can take you beyond the self. But third, and I think most importantly, we need a love that will meet you in your pain. And we see that most powerfully here in this text in a number of places. So the first place, if you look at chapter 3, verse 8, if you would mind throwing it up there, it's the very first verse. It says, finally, all of you be like-minded, be like-minded, uh, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. See, it's this community of love. Or if you see again in verse 4, or chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, it says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. You see, what the Apostle Peter here is telling us is that in order for us to really endure suffering, we need to experience a love that meets us in our pain. We need to belong to a community that's willing to invite in other sufferers so that you might experience pain together. Our world is built in a way that causes us to run away from suffering and even the suffering of others. We, again, spend a lot of energy to shield ourselves from the suffering of others. What what the Apostle Peter is saying, though, is if you experience a community that actually runs to you when you're in pain, that's a love that will transform you forever. And this, of course, was a love that we saw in the early church. There's this uh, historian named Alan Kreider where he says this, he talks about the early church, and he says this, according to Tertullian, who was an African church father, dates right around 200 A.D. According to Tertullian, the outsiders looked at Christians and saw them energetically feeding the poor and burying them, caring for boys and girls who lacked property and parents, being attentive to aged slaves and prisoners. And the watching world said, look, look how they love one another. They didn't say, listen, listen to their great preaching. They didn't say, read, read their incredible arguments. The Roman pagans said, look, look how they love one another. That the early church, the way the early church won the entire Western world was not through the eloquence of their preachers, but by the faithful suffering of their martyrs and their servants. That the early church was a community that met people in their pain, in their suffering. They became a peculiar people because in a world that wanted to ignore and escape suffering at all costs, here was a people that was willing to run into suffering and meet people with the love and the compassion of God. It was a community that says, we're going to meet you precisely in the place of your pain. So Redeemer East Harlem could we become this kind of people in our corner of the city? Could we, as Jesus followers, recapture the glow of that early community as a community of people who are known, who are famous for being willing to run into the pain of others, to run near to people in the midst of their suffering? Those who don't share our beliefs, those who, don't, who disagree with maybe a lot of what we would uh, stand for, 
Can we live in such a way that our neighbors, regardless of what they would believe, would say, look, look how they love one another. Look, look how they love our neighborhood. A love that meets us in our pain. But here's the wonder of the gospel. Because Christianity, and if you're here and you're exploring the Christian faith and you're like, I don't know where my hope is built on. I don't know where I find a purpose that takes me beyond the self. I don't know if I've ever experienced a love that met me in my pain. If you're here wrestling with the claims of Christianity, one of the most amazing and beautiful things about the gospel is that the gospel doesn't just offer you a community of fellow sufferers. It does do that. It creates an entire people that are willing to walk with one another in our pain. But Christianity doesn't just offer you a community of fellow sufferers. sufferers. It offers you a God who was willing to join the community of sufferers himself. That's incredible. Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 18. This is the very heart of this entire passage here, where it says this, chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Do you see this entire argument that Peter is making is grounded in the fact that in Jesus Christ, God himself was becoming a fellow sufferer. That God himself in Jesus is actually the only innocent, true innocent sufferer that the world has ever seen. John Stott, who was a pastor in London, put it this way. He said this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as the God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? In my imagination, I've turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Are you looking for a love that will meet you in the midst of your pain? The Bible tells us that in Jesus Christ, God himself has come in to meet you in your pain, to enter into your suffering, to take it on himself. But here's the real wonder of the gospel. God meets you not just when you're a suffering victim of the sins of others. God meets you in your pain even when you're the perpetrator that has created suffering for others. And he says, I've come not only to suffer with you, I've come to suffer for you so that you might be forgiven eternally, so that there's nothing that you can do that will make you lose the eternal embrace of the Father. I've suffered in your place. Not just a community that meets you, but a God who meets you in your suffering and your sin. Have you met this Jesus? Have you met Jesus who says, when you are wounded, I am wounded. Have you met this Jesus that says, when you were the wounder, I took on your punishment so you could be healed? Have you met this Jesus Christ? 
Because ultimately, it was this king of kings who opened up a portal into another world, who turned the entire world upside down, who through his wounds invites us into the embrace of the Father. Do you know him? Redeemer East Harlem, are we a community that opens up this portal to the people in our neighborhood, offering the hope of Jesus? Are we living such upside-down lives that it provokes questions for which the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only answer? Friends, my prayer for us as a church is that our neighbors, no matter what they believe, would look at us and say, look, look how they love one another. And that they would be drawn to the only love that can heal and transform the love of God in Jesus Christ. So let's do that. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you as sufferers. That to live in this world is to endure great and at times inexplicable suffering. And Lord, we come to you bearing wounds, but we also come to you as those guilty of wounding. And Lord, we come to a God who is not distant, who has not remained immune, but who has entered in, who was wounded by our own hands, who by your wounds you have healed us. And so Lord, as we approach this table and we look at a body crumbled to dust, we look at blood spilled. We remember what you have done. And we remember that we in Christ have a hope that suffering can't take away, a purpose that lifts us above ourselves. But more than anything, we have a love that meets us in our pain. And so we come bringing our pain to this table. Would you meet us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.